If you're looking at the Bibles provided, you'll find this on page 896. I invite you to follow along as I read God's word. When I'm done reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And if you agree that this is God's gift to us, join me to say thanks be to God. John 10, 1 to 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of the, out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to you again. It is a joy to be with you again preaching God's word today. I want to thank the elders of West Creek for ministering more on Sunday mornings during the month of August. Uh, Kate and I were grateful to have time off to focus on caring for our new son, adjusting to life as parents. We can't thank you enough for your kind and for your generous support to us. Uh, While we're jumping back into the gospel according to John, where we left off last year... Now, we've devoted the last few months of each year to go through the book of John. Last year, we went through chapters 5 through 9. So if you're new to the Gospel of John or if you just need a refresher, let's just take a little bit of a running start. John helps us by giving more or less of a purpose statement of his entire book. And it actually comes at the very end of the book in chapter 20, verse 31. He writes there that these are written, like this whole book is written, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, while there are other things that John accomplishes in his gospel, his main goals are to establish the identity of Jesus and to establish what it means to respond to him with faith. In other words, John's writing so that you would know who Jesus really is and so that you would know what it means to believe in him. So from the very beginning of this book, John writes, who is Jesus? John writes that Jesus really is God in the flesh. 
That is, Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on flesh to dwell among us. Throughout the gospel, Jesus himself makes these bold claims about his own identity, his own equality with God the Father. And he verifies those claims through various signs. From the very beginning of the book, John establishes that Jesus came to dwell among us in order to die for us. That's the purpose, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sin of the world. From the beginning of the book, John also shows us that all people everywhere need Jesus. They need Jesus in order to be restored to God, the Father, and in order to be forgiven of their sin. Everywhere, everyone needs Jesus. Both the supposed good Pharisee needs him, like Nicodemus, and the supposedly irredeemable Samaritan, like the woman at the well, needs Jesus. So here's the Gospel of John in a nutshell. Who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and the need to trust and follow him. There's a lot more we could say about what we've seen in John so far, but these big purposes will orient you wherever you are in the Gospel of John. So here we are today coming at the chap- uh, to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, John doesn't really indicate that the setting or the people involved has changed from chapter 9. To remind you, chapter 9, Jesus heals a physically blind man. And his healing of a physically blind man reveals the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, instead of rejoicing over a man being healed, the Pharisees question this man. They question this man's loyalty to Jesus. And this man, this healed man, refuses to back down. And when he refuses to back down, the Pharisees kick him out of the synagogue and they belittle him. It's at this point that Jesus indicts the Pharisees for their blindness. They can't see the truth that is plainly in front of them. That among the predictions of the Old Testament for the king that God would send to save his people was the prediction that this king would open the eyes of the blind. And here was Jesus doing that, and the Pharisees were blind to it. They're too preoccupied maintaining their own position to see it. We should have those interactions in mind as we come to chapter 10. So as much as chapter 10, what we read is an establishment of Jesus' own identity, It's also a contrast between Jesus and the religious authorities of his day. So here's just how this section of chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, here's how this is laid out. Really in verses 1 to 5, Jesus begins this word picture about shepherding. And then John sort of chimes in and gives this narratival note. He says, the Pharisees listening don't get it. And then after that, picking up in verse 7, Jesus goes on to expand this word picture about shepherding. That's kind of how this section works, how it's laid out. But what is Jesus doing in chapter 10, 1 to 18? What's the point he's trying to make? Well, I think Jesus is saying that he is the shepherd that people truly need, not the religious authorities of the day. I think Jesus is saying, Jesus is telling you, he's telling me, that the safe and secure and satisfied life that you're looking for comes only through him, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and then took it up again. So today we're going to look at those who will lead you away from this life. We're going to look at the one who gives you this life. And we'll look at what it means to be one who has received this life. In other words, we're not going to take this passage in strict chronological order. We're going to look at three different groups that Jesus talks about throughout John 10, 1 to 18. 
We're to look at what he, who Jesus calls thieves and robbers. We'll look at Jesus himself and how he describes himself. And then finally, we'll look at those who believe in Jesus, who he calls his sheep. These are the three different groups we'll look at for our time. Let's begin with the thieves and robbers, what Jesus says about this group. Now, sometimes when you're watching cartoons or when you're watching an old James Bond movie, the bad guys are really easy to spot, right? I mean, the bad guys are the ones who usually have like an eye patch or maybe a pencil-thin mustache, pointed eyebrows, maybe even they wear a cloak. They're obvious. They're easy to spot. And in the word picture that Jesus uses right off the bat in verse 1, the bad guys are obvious. Right? Think about it. If anyone tries to sneak into your house not using the front door, you have good reasons to suspect their motives. Right? So Jesus opens this word picture about shepherding, and he talks about guys who try to sneak into the sheepfold unnoticed. Now, a little bit of background. The sheepfold was a type of courtyard near or beside a house, and it would be bordered by a stone wall. It often contained several different uh, flocks of sheep belonging to various shepherds. Now, remember, Jesus has just been talking to the Pharisees in chapter 9. There's no indication he stopped talking to the Pharisees. So by describing the Pharisees as those who try to sneak into another way, Jesus is confronting them. It's, it's Jesus' way of saying, you guys have underhanded, devious motives. What's more, by saying that they sneak in another way, he's confronting them. He's saying, you guys don't have authorized access to the sheepfold. The gatekeeper doesn't know you. You have to sneak in. They might have certain labels. They might occupy certain offices. They might even wear official religious garb. But what Jesus is saying is that you guys aren't approved by God. Friends, let this be a lesson for you right off the bat. It's not to make you paranoid, it's to make you aware. Not every person who occupies a religious office, not every person who has a position in the church is a sincere minister of the gospel. You know, maybe you've become skeptical, maybe you're hesitant about the church because you've just had bad experiences with leaders in the church. I'd say to you, that's fair. But I want you to read a passage like this and know that Jesus isn't naive. Jesus isn't indifferent to that problem. He is aware of it and he is against it. Now, Jesus continues, he continues to describe this group that he calls thieves and robbers. And I want you to notice in verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, some have observed that this switch from the plural thieves to the singular thief might be significant. That it could be a reference to Satan, sort of the chief bad guy who's ultimately behind all the other bad guys. This would be similar to what Jesus said back in chapter 8, verse 44. He said there, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He's like, Satan is behind you guys. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, we said how in this story and often in the stories we watch and listen to that the bad guys are usually pretty easy to spot. But you know as well as I do that in real life, bad guys aren't always easy to spot. Even some stories that we watch or read are set up that way. I think of the movie Ocean's Eleven. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, so Ocean's Eleven is about a group of guys who are trying to rob a casino. 
And the movie is set up in such a way that you end up rooting for a group of thieves to succeed. <laughs> These are the bad guys, and they're treated like good guys. So it's, it's not always black and white. Sometimes it's murky. That's real life. The Bible confirms that too. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that wolves can hide in sheep's clothing. The Bible says that Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. So false teachers are seldom direct about their intention to steal and kill and destroy. Instead, most of the time, false teachers tell you good things. They promise you freedom, but they end up delivering slavery. So here are questions for you. How can you spot false teaching? And how can you spot a false teacher? How can you spot false teaching? Oh, there's, there's a lot we could say, but just in light of this passage, so a good starting point. You can spot false teaching by where the teaching points. Where does this passage constantly point? Points back to Jesus. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the good shepherd. False teaching points away from Jesus. It points to the teacher or it points to you. Right? The message of the Pharisee is not all that different from the moralistic message of achievement, the moralistic message of self-help that you hear today. You hear messages all the time of relying on your own strength, messages about relying on your own effort, messages about relying on your own goodness in order to establish yourself as a successful, upright person who's acceptable in God's sight. This false teaching is not just limited to the prosperity gospel. It is everywhere. This message is the, the one that your nice neighbor believes. Right? Have these good old-fashioned values of God, family, and country. Be better than the people who are a drag on society and you are okay. Friends, where does a message like that point? Does it point to Christ or does it point to you? It's a me- this is a message then that promises life but delivers death. Just like Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. How can you spot false teaching? Look where it points. How can you spot a false teacher? Well, in another place, Jesus said that they will, false teachers will be known by their fruits. And he says something similar here in John 10. Just take a look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus is saying that Pharisees, you guys aren't out for the sheep. You guys aren't out to feed the sheep. You guys are out to fleece the sheep. And as soon as the going gets tough, you guys will flee the sheep. This indictment in John 10 echoes God's indictment of the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34 where God says something similar, that the leaders of Israel have been feeding themselves while fleecing the sheep. So whether John 10 or Ezekiel 34, false teachers, you can know them because they are out for their own advancement rather than for the people's good. So here's this group, thieves and robbers, representing false teachers, representing the Pharisees, the religious authorities of Jesus' day. Let me give you just three quick applications in light of this group. Okay, first way to apply this, okay? Number one, Friends, you need to have a category for false teachers and false teaching. These need to be categories for you in your actual life, that these things are true and real. There is such a thing as false teaching and false teachers. Now, I want to approach this well. I want to be nuanced about this because we can go down this road and there are a couple of ditches we can fall into. On the one side, we can fall into a ditch of never saying there's anything as such as false teaching and false teachers, just because we don't want to be offensive or harsh. We don't use those words. 
On the other side, we can use these words way too much. We can call everything false teaching, everything an antichrist, everything a false prophet. So you want to stay on the middle, right? There is such a thing as false teaching and false teachers. The Bible uses these categories. It talks about wolves and false prophets and antichrist and heresies. I've heard the importance of having this category explained like this. I want you to think about the cabinet that's underneath your kitchen sink at home. And all of the stuff, maybe it's a mess down there like the cabinet is in my house, right? All of the stuff, all of those different cleaning supplies that are underneath your sink at, at your house. I bet many of them, because of the ingredients, because of the chemicals that they contain, I'm sure many of them have a warning on it, right? It says something like, warning, keep away from children, don't drink this, don't put it in your eyes, and it probably even has like a skull and crossbones to really get your attention. Now imagine if the people who made these uh, cleaning agents, they didn't want to be harsh or offensive. Uh, so they would kind of tone down the warning, they would put uh, rainbows and butterflies by it, maybe put it in like very small print. It's like, hey, if you think about it, so like maybe if you feel like it, don't use, don't eat this. Um, and so the thing is, what, what would they do if they did that? They would actually make it more dangerous. They're not changing what's inside. By minimizing the warning, they're not actually being kind, they're actually being harsh. You've actually made it more dangerous. Friends, this needs to be a category for you, false teaching and false teachers. Second way to apply this group of thieves and robbers. Friends, the primary influences, the primary voices that you should be listening to should be pointing you to Christ. The primary voices you should be listening to should be pointing you to Christ. You might listen to pundits pontificate about politics or finances or sports or parenting, and maybe they have good things to say. You know, we can learn from all sorts of people. But the mo- where you spend the most of your time and energy should be those who point you to Christ. Third way to apply this group is, is that you should watch out for the ways that you might reflect the Pharisees in how you go about your relationships. Watch out for the ways you might reflect the Pharisees and how you go about your relationships. So let me just ask you, I'll ask myself, are, are you constantly sarcastic or passive-aggressive and sneak around what you're really trying to say? Do you really seek, in your relationships, do you really seek the other person's good or do you seek just your own agenda? This is a good filter to have. In your relationships, do you, you check out when it requires sacrifice? Friends, these are patterns that Jesus confronts in the Pharisees. So here is that first group from John 10. The second group or the second character we'll look at from this passage is Jesus himself. Now, the first observation to make about Jesus from this passage, it's pretty obvious, is that he's unlike the thieves and the robbers. He constantly contrasts himself with them. Just look at verse two. Unlike the thieves and robbers, Jesus has no underhanded motives. Unlike them, he's the authorized and the approved shepherd. Verse 5, unlike the thieves and robbers, the true sheep of God actually listen to Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, the thieves and robbers essentially sacrifice the sheep so that they can live. But Jesus sacrifices himself so that the sheep can live. You can keep going. But Jesus is unlike the crooked and corrupt thieves and robbers. Here's maybe just a quick takeaway for you 
you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder, would you say that you have some type of trust issues? I wonder if, if you would say that you have a hard time trusting people. If, if you have a hard time letting someone in to see your heart and life, if you have a hard time even trusting those in the church. Well, my friend, I, I don't know what's happened in your life to uh, allow that. And you and I have so many reasons to be skeptical about people. But let me tell you something here that Jesus says. You don't have to be skeptical about Jesus. That there is no one like him who is completely and utterly trustworthy. So who is Jesus? He is unlike those crooked thieves and robbers. And in his extended word picture, Jesus describes himself in two simple ways. It's two I am statements. He's made several of them so far in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the door. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In verse nine, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Now, by saying this about himself, I am the door, Jesus implies something about you and me. If we have to enter in, then, aren't, then we aren't automatically on the inside, are we? If the sheepfold is like the presence of God, where there is safety and pasture and abundant life, then what Jesus is saying, that if we have to enter in, then by nature, we are on the outside of the presence of God. That's where we are. This stems all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. What was one result of their rebellion against God to choose their own way instead of him? What was one result of that? Well, it was to be banished from God's presence. Jesus echoes that here. A place like Isaiah 53, 6 confirms it. That verse says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us, to our own way. But Jesus is saying that there's good news, that there is a way back, and that way back is only through him, the Son of God. He is the door. Later, he'll say, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Later, Peter will say, there is uh, salvation, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. He is the door and the only one, the only way back into the presence of God. Maybe... Maybe you interact with that and you have a hard time with that. Maybe someone you know who's not a Christian would have a hard time with this. They say something like, really, Jesus is the only way to salvation? Jesus is the only way to God the Father, the only way to eternal life? But if you have a hard time with Jesus being the only way, I, I, I want you to consider a couple things. I want you to consider that you can't get away from exclusive claims. You can't get away from exclusive claims. This is by no means original to me. Let's say, though, you ascribe to a mantra, kind of a mindset of there are many legitimate ways back to God. There are many good ways to heaven. You know, you just got to do the one that works best for you. Maybe that's sort of the mantra that you abide by. Well, friend, I want you to consider that when you say something like that, you're actually making an exclusive claim. You have to think more deeply about it. What you're saying is that your way of thinking is the only way that's right. <laughs> and really what you're not doing, you're not being honest. In reality, the different paths, the different supposed paths are so different and so contradictory that they can't all be right. 
But if you have a hard time with Jesus' claim to be the only way, to be the only door back to God, I want you to consider something else. Consider that Jesus' exclusivity is better than any other kind of exclusivity. Because Jesus has an inclusive exclusivity. Here's what I mean. The Pharisees and all other exclusive claims are exclusive exclusivity. For the Pharisees, you have to fit the mold of a Pharisee before you can enter in. Just like for the Romans, you have to fit the mold of a Roman before you can be included in. But what does Jesus say? For Jesus, he says in this passage, anyone who enters by me will be saved. Anyone. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to fit a certain mold. You don't have to adopt a certain appearance. You come as you are, whether Jew or Roman, and you come to him. His is an inclusive exclusivity. But maybe the fact that there is just one way still rubs you the wrong way. Well, I want you to consider this also. My friend, it is a mercy that there is any way at all. It is a mercy that there is any way at all because you and I don't deserve this. We aren't owned this, but God graciously gave it. And my friend, you can no sooner find another way back to forgiveness, another way to eternal life, than you can find another man who died and rose again and who lived a sinless life. So my plea to you this morning is to enter the door of Jesus Christ while it's still open. Because there's coming a day when this door will be shut and it will be shut forever. Today is the day to turn from trusting and following yourself to trusting and following him. My friend, have you decisively done that? Kids in the room, have you decisively done that? Come to Jesus for forgiveness. Stay with him and follow him all of your days. He is the door and the only one. He describes himself with another I am statement in this passage. Jesus also says of himself, I am the good shepherd. What does Jesus do as the good shepherd? When I think of these three things, he draws, he leads, and he dies for the sheep. He draws them. Look at verse three. He calls them by name. Look at verse 16. He brings sheep into the fold. He draws them in. Now there's a tension here, isn't there? That we have responsibility to enter the door. We have responsibility to come to him. But who is the one who takes the initiative? Is it us or is it him? No, it is him. It's not that we love God, but God first loved us. Like we sing, Jesus sought us when we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God. He draws us in. And he does this personally, and he does it corporately. He knows the individuals, and he knows the entire group. And he does this, and he he brings a mutual connection and intimacy in this relationship. You look at verse 14, he says, I know my own and my own know me. He goes on to say that so deep is his knowledge of us and his care for us that he likens it to the relationship between the all-knowing son and the all-knowing father. What does he do as a good shepherd? He draws us in. He also leads us. Verse 3 says he leads us out. Verse 4, he goes before us. Verse 10, he leads us to abundant life. Now, most shepherds in the West, maybe that you're familiar with, maybe that you've seen clips of, drive their sheep with sheepdogs, and those sheepdogs are unbelievable. But shepherds in the Near East would draw out their sheep 
with their own individual calls. There is a unique bond between them and their sheep. The sheep trust their voice as they lead. They listen to the shepherd's commands because they know he will lead them to good places. Our good shepherd leads us. My friend, maybe this is a key to obedience that you're missing in your life. That obedience for you in the Christian life isn't just about saying no to the things that you really want to do, but know that you're not supposed to do. Obedience is deeper than that. Obedience is saying yes to Jesus, your good shepherd. Obedience is trusting that my shepherd will lead me to better places than I will lead myself in my own supposed wisdom. That is the heart of obedience. It is trust. What does Jesus do as the good shepherd? He draws us in, he leads us, and he dies for us. This is the centerpiece of his work. Look at verse 11. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You'll hear people say that Jesus is a good teacher. You'll hear Jesus say, people say that Jesus is an upright, good, moral example. Jesus is both of those things. But let no one fool you. Jesus states plainly the main part of his mission right here, to lay down his life for the sheep. Again, doesn't this imply something about the sheep? Doesn't this say something that's true about you and me? How would it make sense for Jesus to die for the sheep if the sheep aren't in any sort of danger? Let me think about this. This would be like someone uh, being safely aboard a ship with a group of people and just casting themselves overboard as they're falling, just screaming out, look at how much I love you all, and then crashing into the ocean. Would that make any sense? Maybe it'd be, a, a, I guess, a nice gesture, but not really. What would be a greater display of love is not that if you're safely aboard the ship, but if you are drowning at the bottom of the ocean. And so Jesus' work is not just a random display of love and sacrifice. It is a rescue mission. Throws himself off to the bottom of the ocean, to, to the pit, to die. This is his central work. He knows who he's coming for, and he knows what he'll do for them. He will die so that his sheep will live. What this means is that the one who calls us, the one who calls himself the shepherd, is also the lamb who is slain. He is both. Now, Jesus fills in the details of his central work of dying for his sheep. He says this is what causes his father to love him. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that the father didn't love him until he died on the cross. No, in John 17, Jesus prays to the father, talking about the love that they had for one another before the foundation of the world. Now, instead, I think Jim Hamilton is right on this. He's a theologian who was helpful. It's not that this is when the father's love starts for Jesus when he dies on the cross. This is when the father's love is multiplied for Jesus. Doesn't your respect and admiration of someone else multiply when you see them sacrifice? So at the cross, Jesus displays his delight in and his agreement with his father's plan to save sinners. Now, Jesus fills in uh, more details about his central work to save his people, to lay down his life for them. Look at the details in verse 17. He says that he lays down his life that he may take it up again. A better way to translate that would be that he lays down his life in order to take it up again. That his death wasn't an end in itself. It wasn't the end altogether. His death was the way to victory over sin and the grave. 
a victory that's applied to those who trust him. What's more, Jesus says that his death is no accident. Verse 18, he lays down his life of his own accord. Jesus is saying, I am no victim. I am a willing volunteer. The apostles understood that he was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there he is, Jesus, this second character, this second group. He is unlike the thieves and robbers. He is the only door to heaven. He is the good shepherd who leads, who who draws out, who leads and dies for his sheep. So my question for you as we go on to our last point, our last section, is are you one of Jesus's sheep? Are you one of Jesus's sheep? I think of that question and I think of uh, how in our day and age, being a sheep is like an insult, right? It means that you check your mind at the door and you're just a, a nameless voice in a crowd. But that's not how Jesus describes life as one of his sheep, is it? He says a life as one of Jesus's sheep is not a miserable and lifeless experience. It is abundant life. Let's take a look at what it means for, to have life as one of Jesus's sheep. This last section, I want, to, I want you to see how Jesus describes you as one who trusts him and follows him. What's true about you as belonging to the fold of Christ? Several things. Jesus says what is true of you is that you are chosen and called. You are chosen and called. My goodness, in a world of 8 billion people, the most important one knows your name. And a question we might ask in light of this is that how does Jesus know which ones to call? Is it the ones who just look the best? Is it the ones who he know will respond? It's neither of those. The ones he calls are the ones the Father in his own sovereignty has chosen. Remember John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, this might lead you to scratch your head. This might lead you to shake your fist. But I would encourage you for this to lead you to gratitude. Because here's the thing. Christian, if God didn't choose you, you wouldn't have chosen him. If Jesus didn't call you, you would still be on the outside of the fold. What's true about you as a sheep of Jesus? Well, you are chosen and called. You are also purchased. This might be a detail you you can easily skip over, but look again at verse 12. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. So why does the hired hand leave? What does Jesus say? Why Why does he flee? He says, because he doesn't own the sheep. So this means, conversely, that Jesus, your good shepherd, does own the sheep. This means that he owns you. He laid down his life, not just so that you would be forgiven, but so that you would be his. What security, what freedom that is to be owned by the Son of God. As we sing, surely those he has saved are his delight. Surely, if Jesus owns you, he's not returning you. Not only is this deeply comforting, it is also deeply constraining. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, that you and I were bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore, we glorify God in our body. 
What's true about you, the one who follows and trusts Jesus? You are chosen and called. You are purchased. You are led and cared for. If the death and resurrection of Jesus happened not by accident, but by design, then that means nothing in your life is by accident. Nothing about your life is spiraling out of control. Nothing about about your life is happening outside the purview of God's plan. By his word, your good shepherd is with you now. He is leading you to the home he's preparing for you. He is molding you to be like him. And your good shepherd, he doesn't always give you or tell you what you want. No, he's too committed to your good for that. He always gives you and tells you what you need. You are led and cared for. Jesus says, as as a sheep in his fold, you have a new spiritual discernment. Look again at verses four and five. As a sheep in Jesus' fold, you follow Jesus and you flee from anything that points you away from him. Now, can Christians still fall prey to false teaching? Yes. Can they for a time be led astray and deceived? Yes. Read what happened to the Galatians. But Jesus is saying that you are able to keep your discernment sharp. And keeping your discernment sharp, friends, it doesn't happen through spending endless hours on the internet, staying up to date on the latest false teaching. No. It comes first by listening to and longing for the voice of Jesus. Brother and sister, that is how you keep your discernment sharp, by feeding on his word, hearing his voice. You who are called Jesus' sheep, what's true about you? So much more. Jesus says you have a new family. Verse 16 reflects Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 6, that he is a light for all the nations. Your new family has a beautiful unity and diversity, and you play a part in the choir whose different sections harmonize to the praise of God. You have a new family. Who are you? The one who trusts and follows Jesus. I'll tell you who you are lastly, according to this passage. You are known and loved. As the song puts it, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all your sorrows. He knows all your sin. He knows all the comments under your breath that you've ever made. He knows all of your longings, all of your dreams. Jesus knows who you are behind the front that you put on for other people. And yet, no one has ever spoken sweeter words of love to you. No one has ever given you better promises. No one has went to further lengths or endured greater suffering out of their love for you. Christian, you are known and loved by your good shepherd. This is who he has made you to be, chosen and called, purchased, led and cared for, spiritually discerning, part of his family, known and loved. You know, I wonder if you came here this morning you know, thinking or even functionally thinking something like this. You know, if only if this was true about my life, fill in the blank, then everything would be okay. Or on the other side, if only this wasn't true about my life, then yeah, everything would be okay. Now, I'm not here to dismiss your longings or your desires, and neither is God. God tells you to bring your desires to him. What I am telling you is that all of these truths we've just talked about, how you relate to your good shepherd as being chosen and called, as being purchased, led, cared for, discerning, part of his family, known and loved, all of these truths are in place regardless of what's going on in your life. 
This is a deeper resource for contentment than anything else. The abundant life that Christ has won for you is available to you even when your life is disappointing and discouraging. All of these things are still true. Now we should close. Yeah, and as we close, I'm thinking about a scene toward the end of Moses' life. Moses expresses a longing and he prays to God. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 27. Moses has seen firsthand uh, the grumbling of God's people, the near impossible task of leading and providing for God's people. So Moses prays that God would raise up a man who would lead them out and bring them in so that the people won't be like sheep without a shepherd. Now, God answers that prayer, and he answers it first with the man Joshua. But later on in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews says that Joshua wasn't the shepherd that the people truly needed. Joshua couldn't lead the people into true and lasting rest. What John 10 says, Jesus himself says, is that he is the good shepherd we need. The one sent from heaven to dwell among us. The one who faced all that we face and and yet has no sin. The one who died in our place and lives forevermore. If you are to have the safe and secure and satisfied life that you long for, Jesus is the shepherd you need because he is the lamb who is slain. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you and praise you that you can be trusted. Oh God, help us to listen to the voice of Christ that you speak by your word. Help us to follow closely, to follow him and flee everything else. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the door to the presence of the Father, as the good shepherd who laid down your life for us. And we rest and rejoice in the abundant life that you have given us, how you drew us in, how you lead us, how you have died for us, how you know and love us when we are unworthy. And we thank you that you have given us such amazing grace. In your name we pray, amen.